welcome to Bible Fellowship Church. My name's Andrew, pastor here, and um, if, you're, uh, if you're new with us, I just want to say welcome. Um, I say this most every Sunday, but I think it's a good reminder uh, we are not a perfect church. Uh, so if you're looking for one, uh, you're not going to find it here, maybe down the street, I don't know. Um, but we are a church who uh, is confident in the fact that God loves us and that he's demonstrated it in his son. When he came and lived the life we could not live, he died a death that we deserve, and he rose again from the dead so that we could have the life that he deserves. Uh, we are a place where faith and fellowship create a family, not a perfect one, but we are striving to be the family that God desires, one where life is lived with one another, uh, where we're not quick to run away from problems, uh, but that we, uh, we are resilient with one another, where we trust God in our relationships and through our struggles, we work them out for the better of each other. Uh, and so we're seeking to grow into maturity in what, it believes, what we believe and how we live. Um, and so a part of that is singing worship. Uh, thank you, worship team, for that uh, wonderful uh, time. Um, last song was just uh, awesome. Um, he's good. He's, he's beautiful. Um, and it is a privilege to get to gather together as uh, a, a body, a, a family, who we love the same God. Uh, who is saying God's loved us and he's transforming and changing us. But right now we're going to uh, move into our time where we're going to look at God's word. We're going to see what it says to us um, and we're going to seek him um, and see what, what the Lord is speaking to us, what, what we are called to apply in our lives and how he's calling us to conform ourselves to him, to trust him more, to rely on him. Where in our hearts have we not been doing that? Because uh, we are quickly... Uh, we quickly stray, we quickly forget, we quickly do not remember who our God is and what he's done for us and what he's called us to do. And so hopefully today we'll do that. Um, the beginning of this year, if you've been with us for a little while, we've been going through kind of a series that's not a series. We're just kind of looking at some basic things to remind ourselves of who God is. That's over. We're just going to start a new book. Um, and the book we're going to start is uh, the book of Nahum. Some of you are like, who? In, that's not even a real book, Andrew. That's not in there. It is. You look after Micah before um, um, Habakkuk. You have the book Nahum. And why are we in the book of Nahum? I have no idea. Um, but I believe this is where the Lord's calling us to go. Uh, and, and, and like every book of the Bible, it, it's just amazing what the Lord has for us. All scripture is breathed by God. It is profitable for us. Um, and there are some things that we often overlook. Uh, we often don't look at because we just don't understand them. Um, and so hopefully the next couple weeks as we're going through this, uh, we can all see what Nahum is trying to present, uh, what that means for us. Um, and, and hopefully the Lord uses it in our lives to instill a deeper trust in him. Um, so Nahum, just to give you a little bit of background, because we're going to do a little bit of history. We're going to be just kind of in the first like 13 verses of Nahum, and that's going to be it for today. Um, but I want to give you a little bit of background on this book, uh, because this book is written uh, somewhere in the reign of King Manasseh, which all of you know, I know you know, was around 
687, 612 BC, right? It's right there on the top of your head. Yeah. Um, Nahum is writing this prophecy, and his prophecy is unique among the rest of the prophetic books. Uh, I mean, you have, in the Bible, right, you have your, uh, your, your five books of Moses, first five books, you have some, some historical stuff, you have some uh, poetry, then you get into the prophets. You got major prophets, those are the big books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, then you have minor prophets, which are these flyby at the end of the Old Testament. Nahum is writing as a minor prophet, and he's writing to uh, Nineveh, and he's declaring the absolute and complete destruction of Nineveh. Like, the book of Nahum is, is, is intense uh, because there's only like three verses of hope. The rest of it's just like complete destruction, just dismantling this nation. And it's interesting that even in that, there are some things in the way Nahum's written and what it's doing, even though there's like a couple of verses of hope, the whole thing speaks to hope. And it should be uh, for us somewhat of a, either a wake-up call or, or a, 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 a strengthening of the faith and the trust that we've had in the Lord. So Nahum is writing to, uh, to Nineveh. Nineveh, if you don't know, is the, was the capital of the nation Assyria. So Assyria was this wicked nation. They actually took over and, and just ransacked northern Israel. So in the, in the history of, of the Bible, we have, you know, God rescue or calls Abraham. He, he gives him a son. Out of that son, he births a nation. That nation uh, end up, ends up going to uh, Egypt. They're there for a while. They're slaves. He rescues them out. He puts them in the land. And then he establishes them the, there in that land. And they uh, eventually search for a king, they go to a bad king, then they go to a okay king, and then they go to a really wise king, and then after that, the nation splits in two. And so you have uh, northern Israel and you have southern Judah. Uh, and that's, these, are these two nations, and you have in the historical books and Kings and Chronicles, you have a description of both of these nations. Northern Israel, uh, they're terrible. Like, their kings are just horrific. They just constantly are not doing what the Lord is asking them to do. They're constantly worshiping other idols, uh, getting into all sorts of bad pagan practices, sacrificing children, all this nonsense that's going, like, just wicked things that are going on. And eventually, they, the Lord sends an outside nation to come and discipline that nation. Um, and that outside nation is the nation of Assyria. So Assyria comes in 722 BC, and they come and they just ransack the place. They deport everyone out. They leave some people there, and, but they're, they're in rulership. And they were wanting to come and continue the conquest into Judah, and they actually went into Judah for quite, quite, quite far into Judah, surrounded Jerusalem, and the Lord saved Judah from the Assyrians. Uh, so Sennacherib, I'm throwing out a bunch of names out there that you probably don't recognize. But Sennacherib was, was a king of, of Assyria, and he came in, and he surrounded Hezekiah in Jerusalem. He had a horde of an army around him. I mean, they're the most, most military, powerful nation and in the world at the time. And, uh, and, and they come in, and they surround Hezekiah. God does a miracle. 
God saves Hezekiah. God single-handedly kills 180,000 troops of the Assyrians overnight. And they leave. And they go back to their, to their own place and they kind of leave Judah alone until the Lord finally does his discipline on Judah, Judah through Babylon. But at this time when, uh, when uh, Nahum's writing, it, we're sitting in the son of Hezekiah. Like, so you have, a, you have Hezekiah, Lord saved them Assyria, and you have the son of Hezekiah who's sitting there. Assyria is still a major power. I mean, Nineveh was a, was a city that was established. Like, we don't really know about it now because after the destruction of Nineveh, after the, what this prophecy was spoken of, after what was in this, and we'll look through this in the next couple of weeks, very specifically what, Nineveh, what Nahum says of Nineveh actually happens. And after the destruction of Nineveh by the Babylonians, the Medes, the Babylonians, they come in and they, they decimate this city. So much so that we, it was left undiscovered until about 1850 or so when it was excavated. Like the, the destruction of the city was great, which is in, for comparison of us or, or just kind of for, um, I guess, contrast or whatever, this, this city was a, a great city that was established almost at the beginning of, of civilization. We read in Genesis 10 of a man named Nimrod, which is a, was a mighty man, this like first world leader. Um, Nimrod, probably, I mean, nowadays that doesn't sound like someone you'd really be afraid of. You know, it's usually a, a pejorative term. But this man in Genesis 10 says he established these like 10 cities. And uh, one of them was Nineveh. And Nineveh grew and grew and grew until the time of Sennacherib, like I was talking about, this city was, had wealth beyond measure. I mean, they were an absolutely brutal people, like insanely brutal. And if you were with, with me a couple years ago, we went through uh, Jonah and we, we described kind of the brutality of the Assyrians and the Ninevites. Things that they've written in their annuals, uh, we have historical documents and records of them boasting at how brutal they were with their captors. Like things that I can't actually say here because there are ears that should not hear the things that these people have done. I mean, they were absolutely wicked. And they would impale people, they would carry them, they would rip babies out of their mother's wombs, and it's just, just, just despicable. And these people were, were proud of it. They, they built their society on their violence towards other people. And they had people paying them tribute and tribute and tribute. Um, and uh, just so large that um, the, at Sennacherib's time, there was, there was the main city with an inner wall. Um, that inner wall was about eight miles in circumference just for the inner, inner city. And, and it was 100 feet high and it was wide enough for three chariots to ride through. So you think walls of Jericho, they've got nothing on the walls of Nineveh. And that's just the inner wall. Outside of that, they had another wall. And then outside of that, they had a, a major urban sprawl. 
So, so much so when, when, when Jonah goes to Nineveh, he's, he's walking in. And it says it takes him a three days journey to get to the center of Nineveh. Three days of walking. How many of you have ever walked three days? No, none of us. Um, maybe some of us. Uh, this is a massive city. And when they were, when they were destroyed, uh, there was an untold amount of wealth that came out of it. I mean, they were so wealthy. I mean, filthy. They, no one really even knows the amount of money that this nation had. So they're strong, they're powerful, they're on top of the world, and they're ruling with wickedness and brutality. And Nahum speaks towards them, and he calls towards them. Destruction on the city that thinks that no one can touch me. No one can touch me. Everybody's afraid of me. Nobody's going to destroy me. And Nineveh speaks to that. And before we get into Nineveh, I have a little, just a little bit more backstory, um, if, you'll, if you'll stay with me. It's out of Kings, um, 2 Kings chapter 20. I want to just kind of read the situation that Nineveh was living in. And that kind of feeds into a lot of stuff that's going, going on. So, so uh, 2 Kings chapter 21, we have Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, come on the scene. So Hezekiah, Lord saves Hezekiah in part because, not because he's a perfect king, but he, he sought the Lord and he trusted the Lord. He was extremely selfish because he just wanted to rescue himself and not his kids, but uh, the, he did some reforms. He's tore down some altars. He tore down some idol worship. He tore down a lot of stuff, and he's trying to get the people back towards worshiping the Lord. Manasseh comes. He's 12 years old when he begins to reign. Um, and verse 2 of chapter 21, it says, He did what is evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars of Baal and made Asherah, and Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of, the, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord, and he burnt his sons as an offering. And he used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And he carved the image of Asherah that he made and set in the house of which the Lord said to David and Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I give their fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that, according, that I've commanded them, according to the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So Nahum's writing to a people who are wicked, living in a time where his own people are doing things more despicable than what the other nations are doing. This, this prophet 
is sitting in a time where the world has just gone nuts. Crazy. And he writes this. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversary and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His ways in the whirlwind and storm, the clouds are dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him and the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you do to plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Fair like entangled thorns, like drunk drunkards as they drink. They're consumed like a stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I'll break his yoke from off you and burst your bonds apart. It's a pretty heavy book. And I think it's interesting the way our Bibles translate the very beginning of this book. An oracle concerning Nineveh. So that word in, in Hebrew, the root, actually means a burden. Massa. It's a, it's a burden. The burden of Nahum. The burden he had to carry. Not the joy of Nahum that the Lord's going get to get these people. It's the burden. The heavy weight that he has to carry. Nahum is showing himself like the Lord, who does not delight in destruction of people. God is not out there as this, he is vengeful. He is full of wrath because he is just. But he is not vengeful in the way in which we think of vengeance. Someone who's hot-tempered, who enjoys the destruction of people who are coming against him. He doesn't take pleasure in that. And for Nineveh, he's have, or not for, for Nahum, he's having to carry a message to a people Wicked as though they are, but he doesn't necessarily want to, to say it. It's a burden. 
And I, I don't know if any of you probably have the same experience of speaking to someone of something that, that you just don't want to see. Like, I, doctors do this all the time. Nurses, chaplains, pastors. Your worst enemy, but you don't want to see someone with a cancer diagnosis or a loss of a child or bear the, the news of something that's going to destroy a fellow human being. That's not how God is communicating this. In fact, even Nahum, his, his name means comfort. Comfort. And he's called to carry this message of destruction to this nation. And you contrast Nahum with another, the other prophet that a couple years ago we went on, Jonah. Right? Jonah was about 100 years before Nahum. Jonah's there before Assyria comes and takes out northern Israel. Jonah comes from northern Israel. He's from Galilee somewhere, Gath Hefer. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh to tell them of the oncoming destruction. Because Jonah knew they would repent. He knew God would have mercy on them. In fact, he's sulking at the end because God saved these people. And God, like, God is completely merciful with Jonah, and he doesn't want to share that with anyone else. I mean, God saved a dude in a, with a whale, like a giant fish, and somehow he didn't get digested or suffocate, but he was saved. And then when he, when he needed shade, he grew up a plant that he got shade in. And then as an object lesson, he killed it. And he's all upset about his plant and not about the hundreds of thousands of children and people who don't know their right hand from their left hand or are grown up in a system that is constantly teaching them to be destructive to other people. They don't know their way out. Nahum is carrying this burden and he's declaring it and justice is coming. So even though his attitude isn't, I, I hope these people burn in hell, his attitude is this is happening. This is coming. There is a truth to who God is. Last couple of weeks, I've made a, a, a major observation that I want us to keep in our mind this year and throughout your life as a, as a believer. The way in which God describes himself first is this. The Lord, the Lord, the self-existent one, a God, merciful and gracious, compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's how, that's how he puts himself forward, right? But that's not all he puts forward. Who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the children and the children's children to the fourth, third and fourth generation. He's just. He's holy. And his mercy is only seen in his holiness. His compassion is only seen in his holiness. His love is only seen correctly when we understand how just he is. And if he was not just, he would not be good. So he has to punish sin. He has to punish 
wickedness. He has to. And there will be a time when he does. So that staying in our mind, we look at this and we go, okay, here is the justice side of God. And Nineveh says the Lord is jealous and an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. What is a word that was there three times? Avenging, vengeance, vengeance. What is vengeance? Recompense for wrongdoing, right? Something comes against me, vengeance comes back against them. God is an avenging God. He takes care of what is wrong. He comes after and fixes and punishes justly what is wrong. He keeps his wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. See, God is merciful, but he is also just. And he sets himself up and out as the only righteous judge. The one who can be trusted to make things right towards those who are doing wrong things towards us. The one who is the only one to stand and to fix the brokenness. The only one who is able to take out vengeance in a righteous way. In fact, in the Bible, twice, he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Actually, he, he gives that right, right after... Um, Right after he comes in, in, it gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, and Moses comes down, and the people are worshiping another idol and having an orgy, and they're, they're doing crazy things. And he comes back, vengeance is mine. I will repay. I give you the law again. I'm merciful and gracious, but I'm just, guys. And Nahum is reminding us of this. Right, so this nation, this wicked nation, all this stuff that's going on, all this wickedness that's happening in Nineveh is also happening in Judah with, with Nahum. In fact, he's, it's his syncretism with the Assyrians that's causing him to do what they're doing, but to do it worse. So he's joining in what they're doing, modeling after what they have done, and he's trying to replicate it here because he thinks if I'm like those guys, then I will be secure as a king. If I'm like those guys over there, everything's going to work out. And all this stuff is going on in, in, in and around Nahum, and Nahum is speaking towards Nineveh, but in a sense reminding him of the brokenness around him. God is the just judge. Paul, even uh, in Romans 12, uh, reminds us, he says, Behold, beloved, 
Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Nahum doesn't have to fight for himself. Nahum doesn't have to destroy the Ninevites. Nahum doesn't have to work to change the world. Nahum has to trust the Lord and rest and rely on him and follow through what he's asking, that God's asking him to do. The Lord is jealous and avenging. And I just want to make one quick comment because um, God being jealous for some is a major stumbling block. Because we hear jealousy and we think of the people that were around us or our, our own hearts. Right? Nobody really likes to be around a jealous type of person. And what is jealousy? Jealousy is fear of losing that, the love that I rightly deserve. Right? Jealousy is the fear of losing love that I rightly deserve. So if you have a jealous girlfriend or a jealous boyfriend or a jealous whatever, they're usually super trying to control and stay on and fight for what they think is theirs. Um, and they're super, uh, uh, um, what's the word? Um, insecure in the relationship, and they attack anybody who may be threatening that relationship. Jealous, jealous. It's a little bit different than envy, right? Envy is what I want, what someone else has, and I want to make them pay for it, right? But jealousy is a fear of losing that which is rightfully mine. When God says he's jealous, it's not that he's afraid of losing. He's just that I will not lose what is rightfully mine. When God says he's jealous, when, and usually that is connected to his own glory, he will not lose what is rightfully his. God is God. There is no other. He's real. He exists. He's always existed. He will never not exist. There's nothing that can rival him, ever. He's created all things. He holds all things together. All of the fabric of the universe rests in his power to hold it together. So he is glorious. He is weighty. And he deserves every single ounce of glory. He will not let anyone else take that from him. So God saying he's jealous means he will not lose what is rightfully his. He will defend it. When he says he's avenging, he will fight for the right. He will fight for good. He will take care of the wrong. He will fix the broken. He will punish wrong and he will save the righteous. He's a good and just God. And I really, really, really love how though he's a just God, he's not quick-tempered. Listen to what this one commentator said. As a master of wrath and one who reserves wrath for his enemies, 
God displays a calculated control in dispensing his vengeance. He never gives way to passions. He never exceeds propriety. And never compromises his ultimate goals because of a reactionary response to current provocations. His just judgments cannot be questioned and ultimately can bear the most critical scrutiny of any and all because they always remain subject to his calm perfections as God. He is slow to anger. He's waiting for the right moment. He knows what's all there. He's merciful. And as 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us, he's not slow to fulfill his promise. As some count slowness, but he's patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He's not slow. He's not inept. And he will avenge. He will take care of things. Now, Nahum speaking, you know, he uses a lot of poetry talking about how powerful the Lord is, how great he is. Mountains shake, the earth trembles, the, the earth trembles, the, all this stuff is happening because it's just true. This is the being who spoke and everything came into existence. And if he is the avenger, if he's the one who fixes things, if he's the one who's the just judge, how are we supposed to respond to injustices that are around us? Well, not the way we normally do. Not the way we normally do. So we can look at lots of categories of injustices around us. We see it in our own country. We see it across the world. We see it in our community. We see it in our families. We see it in ourselves. We can't really fix the world, not within our power. Can't fix our neighbors, not within our power. Can't fix our friends. Can't fix our neighbor, family members. We can't even fix ourselves. And God calls us not to step into a vengeance towards someone else, but rather to entrust our lives to him. And he, he, he even gave us an example. Je Jesus selected 12 men to follow him. One of them he selected, he knew exactly what he was going to do. This guy's going to betray me. <laughs> a couple pieces of silver. And, he, and that's going to set off a chain of events where I'm going to be uh, beaten, flogged, crucified. And he's sitting down at his last meal 
And he's talking to his disciples, and he says there's someone who's going to betray him. And nobody knew who it was. Even when Judas left, <laughs> they thought he was just going to go do something about the money or something. I mean, the, the, the guys were either just extremely dense, which is probably true, because they're guys, Or Jesus covered the man who was betraying him, not seeking to take any vengeance out in public out of what was happening. As you know, this guy's going to betray me, right? Oh, man, it's just so hard to be with that Judas guy. He covered him. Then even when he was dying... What is he saying on the cross? I mean, he's, he's probably almost bled out by this point, nailed to a cross, naked. They're casting lots for his clothes, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this is the jealous and vengeful God. But he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And the burden that Nahum had to declare this vengeance of God was not coming out of, get these people. Shouldn't be our burden. Should take no joy in someone who perishes not knowing the Savior. Why? Because I am as wicked as they. No one is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3. All like sheep have gone away. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Poison of the vipers are on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. Ah, come on, Pastor, that's not me. I'm not that bad. Have you ever hated your brother in your heart? Have you ever said something to someone intending to harm them? I mean, all of us are perpetrators of this. Man, I really want to defend myself most times. All the time. I don't like it when what I see is said about me is not true about me. I want to defend myself. I want the record clear. I want people to know it. But that's not mine to take. Instead, I am called to entrust myself to the one who judges justly. Instead, I am called to forgive. 
Instead, I am called to have compassion on those who do not know the Lord as I, as I do and recognize my own brokenness in the middle of it. We are called to rest in God's justice. Rest in his justice. And I will again be the first to admit, I am not very good at this. that's what we're called to do. And I know there are horrific things that have happened in your lives. Room this size, this many people, the wicked that this world is. As a pastor, I just see it more and more and more and more. I know there are things that I can't imagine some of you have gone through. And I believe that God is telling you, I will avenge. I will take care of it. And you're going to be, continue to live in the misery you have as long as you continue to hold on the right to avenge yourself. And if you'll give it to me, if you allow me to have it, I can give you the peace that I promised you. I can give you the rest that I've promised you. I will give you the joy that I promised you. Because he's good. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's able to take what we deserve, our sin, our brokenness, everything, and gather it all up and toss it into the depths of the sea. Make us clean by the blood of Jesus. Rescue us. So are we going to trust him? usually leave you with a question, and I guess the question today is, do I rest in his justice? Could be sometimes. Could be all the time. Could be not at all. But the question exists not to make you feel bad about how must you messed things up, to say there is hope today while you're still breathing to trust the Lord, to find hope in him, to rest in his goodness, his faithfulness, and his justice. Let's trust him. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your son. I thank you that, Lord, that you don't treat us as we deserve. And Lord, that we oftentimes will prop ourselves up as deserving something that someone else doesn't has, but and, and desire to, to defend ourselves and pass judgment. Lord, but all of those things are for you. Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts, that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to see where we've been holding on to the vengeance that is yours alone to take.
We trust you. We praise you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together.